You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Daniel from BibleProphecyTalk.com. If you enjoy these podcasts, you may be interested to know that I have taken the information in this series, added some more to it, and put it all in a paperback and Kindle book available on Amazon. So, if you would like to have this commentary on your bookshelf or in your Kindle device, just go to Amazon.com and search for the title, Daniel, a Commentary by Chris White. Your purchase, as well as your reviews, will help to support future endeavors. Thanks for your time, and enjoy this episode. Daniel 11.36 says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. Up to this point in Daniel chapter 11, we have been dealing with the succession of kings from the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires, concluding in verses 21 through 35 with the vile king, or Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. In this verse, however, we have the beginning of a transition to someone other than Antiochus. Stephen Miller says on this point, quote, Exegetical necessity requires that 1136-45 through 45 be applied to someone other than Antiochus IV. Miller is expressing the majority view of conservatives about this section of scripture. That is, by the time we get to verse 36 of Daniel 11, there are certain clues in the text that demand the reader to see the king spoken of there as someone other than Antiochus. Most of these conservative scholars would say that this new king is referring to the Antichrist of the last days, for reasons we will detail later. First of all, we should note that such a transition has precedent within this very chapter. Very often in chapter 11, 1 through 36, the actual king who is in view will change from one verse to the next, while still calling him the king of the north or king of the south. The reader, by this point in the chapter, has become accustomed to looking for a new historical character from one verse to the next, even though he is referred to by the same general title, i.e. the king of the north or south. Even the significant leap forward in time from one character to the next, which would be required in the Antichrist interpretation, has precedent in this chapter. J. Paul Tanner expresses that point this way, Quote, a sudden leap forward in time from Daniel 11:35 to 36 is consistent with other leaps in time throughout the chapter, e.g. 11, 2 through 3. The following are some of the points that scholars have cited as their reasons to see a shift from Antiochus to someone else at this point. Number 1. In verse 40, we are told that the temporal context for this king is during the, quote, time of the end. There is a further defining of what that phrase means in 12.1, which starts out with the phrase, quote, at that time, i.e. during this time of the end king. It goes on to say that at that time will begin a, quote, time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time, an obvious reference to the so-called Great Tribulation, which begins at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. If that wasn't enough to place this king in an eschatological context, he then goes on to say that at that time also includes the resurrection of the dead, 12.2. Number two, the previous section about Antiochus was accurate to the last detail, yet from verse 36 on, we find descriptions of this king that are impossible to apply to Antiochus. In addition, these same details in many cases can be found in other places in scripture as descriptions of the Antichrist. 
Stephen Miller says, quote, For example, Antiochus did not exalt himself above every god, 36-37, reject the god of his fathers, or worship a god unknown to his fathers, verse 38. On the contrary, he worshipped the Greek pantheon, even building an altar and offering sacrifices to Zeus in the Jerusalem temple precincts. Daniel also predicted that this king will, quote, come to his end, end quote, in Palestine, verse 45. But it's a matter of historical record that Antiochus IV died in Persia. And as we go through this study, we will find many other points of divergence between Antiochus and this new king. Number three, J. Paul Tanner notes that, quote, verse 35 still anticipates the, quote, end time, whereas verse 40 reflects the, quote, end time has finally come. Number four, Tanner makes another very important point that we will defend at length later on when he says, quote, in verses 21 through 35, Antiochus IV served in the role of the, quote, king of the north, as did the other Seleucid kings before him. In verse 40, however, the, quote, end quote, king is apparently in contention with both the king of the north and the king of the south. Number five, finally, it should be noted that the king in verse 36 is simply called, quote, the king not the king of the north or the king of the south, as has been the very consistent pattern previously. This is especially important when you take into account all the other kinds of shifts that happen at verse 36. In other words, if there was ever a time to reestablish which king you're talking about, it would be verse 36, yet the text simply calls this person the king. For these, as well as many other reasons that I'm about to explain, I will be writing this commentary with the assumption that the Antichrist is in view in verses 36 through 45, a view which I share with nearly every conservative expositor. Next we have this phrase, Then the king shall do according to his own will. Though it is certainly possible that this reference to the king doing his own will could simply be a reference to his not taking orders from anyone else, especially in contrast to Christ who consistently did his father's will, John 5.30. I think it's also possible that this phrase could have something to do with his military might, as the phrase is used by Daniel to refer to earthly kings like Alexander the Great in 8.4 and Antiochus I the Great 11.16. In that context, doing their own will is speaking of them conquering in a military sense. Both views are possible and not mutually exclusive. An example of this is Daniel 8.4, which says, I saw the ram, that is Alexander, pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will, and became great. Next we have this phrase, He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods. We are given similar information about the Antichrist in Daniel 7.25, which says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. We are told that he will magnify himself above every god, this particular idea that the man of sin will not just be a blasphemer, but he will declare himself greater than all gods, including Yahweh, is quoted by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 when he says of the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. As a kind of side note, it would appear to me that the so-called revealing of Antichrist occurs here at the midpoint when he sits in the temple and makes this blasphemous declaration. It's not at all clear to me if this was his public theology for the first three and a half years. I suspect not. It's my guess that the abomination of desolation occurs at some point after his apparent resurrection from the dead, and this is possibly when his theology of him being higher than every god develops. 
we have this phrase, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. This is a reference to the Antichrist being given power to prosper for a short time. Revelation 13.7 says, It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He will only prosper, quote, till the wrath has been accomplished. This is a reference to God's wrath, a wrath that must come as a part of the eschatological end of the age. This is referenced by Daniel in other places. For example, Daniel 8.19. He calls it there the, quote, latter time of the indignation. When God's wrath has been accomplished, the man of sin will be imprisoned in the abyss with the false prophet and will eventually be destroyed. Revelation 20.2-10. Daniel 11.37 says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. First, let's take this phrase about him not regarding the God of his fathers. This verse is often twisted and tweaked to suit a particular commentator's presuppositions about the Antichrist. Even certain Bible translations make the G in God lowercase and add an S, making it God's and not God, to make it seem as if Yahweh is definitely not in view here. I've even heard commentators say that in the Hebrew, Elohim is plural in this case, but such a statement is either ignorant or dishonest. Take Arnold Fruchtenbaum, for example, who writes, quote, Any student of Hebrew would see from the original Hebrew text that the correct translation should be, quote, the gods of his fathers, and not the God of his fathers. First of all, this statement is simply not true. Dr. Michael Heiser is more than, quote, any student of Hebrew. He has a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages. He points out the fallacy of Fruchtenbaum's statement when he says, quote, Elohim can either be singular or plural depending on the context. Heiser goes on to give an example of how to determine if Elohim is singular or plural. He says that the word Elohim or God in Hebrew is a lot like the word sheep or deer in English. They can be singular or plural depending on the context. For example, in the sentence, the sheep are lost, we know that the usage is plural. But in the sentence, the sheep is lost, we know that it is singular. Dr. J. Paul Tanner, also a Hebrew expert, agrees with Heiser and adds another point in favor of this being a reference to Yahweh in his class notes on Daniel 11. He says, quote, The Hebrew term Elohim can be translated as God or gods. While either translation is grammatically correct, we should observe that the expression, the God of his fathers, is a commonly used phrase in the Old Testament to refer to Israel's covenant God Yahweh, who had long associated himself by covenant with the, quote, fathers of the nation. He goes on to reference a number of instances when this Hebrew phrase is used. Exodus 3.16, 1 Chronicles 28.9, 2 Kings 21.22, Genesis 31.29, Genesis 46.1 and 3, Jeremiah 19.4, and Daniel 2.23. Think of how damaging that point is to Fruchtenbaum's argument. He says that, quote, any student of Hebrew would know that Elohim is plural here, yet in the other instances in scripture, the exact same phrase is translated as singular, where it's quite clear that Yahweh is in view and not pagan gods, while conversely the phrase is never used to refer to pagan gods. The significance of this verse is that it would be strong evidence that the Antichrist would be of Jewish origin. This would seem to make sense if he was to try to pass himself off as a Messiah. There would be little hope of a man being accepted as the Messiah to the Jews unless he was in fact Jewish. Although this doctrine is difficult to be dogmatic about, there are other passages that seem to suggest this too, such as Ezekiel 28.10. 
Joe Richardson, author of The Mideast Beast and a proponent of the Islamic Antichrist theory, somewhat ironically agrees with the idea that this phrase is speaking about Yahweh and not pagan gods. Though he makes the case that when it says that the Antichrist will not regard the God of his fathers, it is a reference to how an Islamic person's lineage ultimately would go back to Abraham through Ishmael. This too would have problems. Number one, it would be unprecedented. There is no indication of any usage of the phrase God of his fathers to refer to anyone except Jews in the Bible. Number two, the fathers are a very distinct group of people when used in this context. Often they are even named as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The very idea that multiple fathers are in view in this phrase is an argument against this because in Richardson's view it is only one father that could be said to be a part of Ishmael's lineage, that is Abraham. Abraham's son, Jacob, later renamed Israel, is where the patriarchal covenant line starts. It is highly doubtful, then, that Scripture would use this phrase, God of his fathers, to refer to someone outside the covenant line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which Ishmael certainly would be. Next, we have the idea that the Antichrist will not regard the desire of women. There are two main views about this passage. Number one, that the Antichrist will be a homosexual, or at least unconcerned, with women. Number two, that this phrase is a way to speak of Jesus. That is, that the Antichrist will have no regard for the true Messiah, who is desired of women in the sense that Jewish women desire to give birth to the Messiah. I would suggest a third option before discussing each one, and that is that this could simply be referring to childbirth itself, not necessarily messianic childbirth. In other words, that the Antichrist will not care about the desire of women, which is having children in general, a common biblical theme. This could be referring to 1 Timothy 4.3, which says that in the, quote, latter times, marriage would be prohibited, which could be extended to mean that there would be an end times ban on childbirth as well. I think that all three interpretations are possible based on the grammar. However, I tend to lean toward the view that this is talking about Jesus because of the context. Let's look at this verse again to see why I say that. It says, quote, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. There are three ideas expressed in this phrase. The first is that he won't have regard for the god of his fathers. The second idea is the one in question. And the third is about him exalting himself above any god. It would seem to me that the second idea about the desire of women would be most likely associated with the theme of his blasphemous acts, which the first and third ideas are. If it were talking about him being a homosexual or abolishing childbirth, it would seem to be contextually out of place, sandwiched between two ideas of the same nature. However, if it were talking about the Messiah, then it would make great sense. It would read something like this. He will not regard God or the Messiah, but will exalt himself above them both. Many commentators take this position, and though I have not seen clear evidence myself of the historical or cultural desire of Jewish women being to give birth to the Messiah, there is some indication of this found in the Gospel of Luke, in which Mary says, quote, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. It may be that Daniel used this desire of women idea to refer to the Messiah's prophesied human birth. We see in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah would come through childbirth, that is, through Eve. One could also see his references to the, quote, Son of Man in Daniel 7.13-14 as a precursor to this language in Daniel to refer to the Messiah. Daniel 11.38 says, But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, a god which his fathers did not know, 
He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. The Antichrist seems to honor a God other than the true God and his Son. This is also paradoxical. On one hand, we are just told that he honors no gods but himself, and on the other hand, we are told that he does honor a God. In order to try to figure this out, we need to read the entire section and get as much information about this God of fortresses as we can. Daniel 11:38 and 39 say, But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with the foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. It appears that this worshipping of the God of fortresses is not simply for show, but in fact real homage is paid, as well as genuine reward for that homage is given, rewards such as him successfully conquering lands and causing him to rule over many, both of which are attributed to this God that he worships. If one considers these details, then the identity of this God of forces or fortresses can be surmised, because we know by what power the Antichrist conquers the nations and rules over many. Revelation 13.2 says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. The dragon is an unambiguous reference to Satan in Revelation 13. Another example of this idea that the Antichrist derives his power from Satan is Second Thessalonians 2. It says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. It is admittedly difficult in this reading to understand a phrase like a god which his fathers did not know, because in one sense Satan was known by even Adam. Perhaps it could be a reference to a more intimate knowing, like in the case of worshipping. There is no clear picture of anyone knowingly worshipping Satan in the Bible that I am aware of. Next we have this phrase, He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. There is only one other place that this phrase, gold and silver with precious stones, can be found in the Bible, and that is Revelation 18.12, in reference to the items that are brought to Mystery Babylon. In my book, Mystery Babylon, When Jerusalem Embraces the Antichrist, I go through every item that the merchants bring to the city of Jerusalem, and show that in each case there is a connection to the rebuilding of the temple, the reinstitution of the sacrificial system, as well as a massive worldwide pilgrimage system, which I am sure the Antichrist intends to look like the institution of the millennial reign. I believe that this sacrifice of gold and silver to Satan is fulfilled with the image of the beast. Revelation 13, verses 14 and 15 say, And he, speaking of the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth, by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The image of the beast seems to be placed in the temple after the abomination of desolation for the purpose of receiving the worship of humanity. Paul tells us that spiritual beings can essentially receive the worship that people direct toward idols, 1 Corinthians 10.20, and it would seem probable, therefore, that Satan is receiving the worship directed to the image of the beast. Revelation 13.4 seems to make the point clear. It says, So they worshipped the dragon, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? Here we are told that the dragon, that is Satan, is worshipped, and also the beast, that is the Antichrist. This dual worship could be explained by the scenario I outlined here. 
So I suggest that the image of the beast is an image of the Antichrist put in the temple to be worshipped, because the Antichrist cannot stay in the temple, as he has wars to make. But this also must be done in order to seem to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah sitting in the temple and receiving gifts from the world pilgrimage continually. It may even be that the materials used in the image of the beast's construction are gold, silver, and precious things. I say this because the false prophet tells, quote, those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast, and it may be that just like in Exodus, when the people used their gold jewelry to make the image of the calf, that they used their gold and silver and precious things to make this image of the beast. But this point is unclear. The next verse, Daniel 11.39 says, Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. First we have this phrase, Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. This is referring to the wars of Antichrist, which will be detailed in verses 40 through 45. Satan, as we have seen, is the power behind this conquering of fortresses by the Antichrist. We have this phrase, acknowledge and advance its glory. It's difficult to reconcile the idea of the Antichrist exalting himself above every god, as well as acknowledging and advancing this foreign god, though I think the answer can be found in Revelation 13.4, where people are worshipping Satan who gave the beast his power and the beast himself. While this verse seems to suggest an acknowledging of Satan by the Antichrist in some way, it's not clear to me if this acknowledging of Satan will be obvious to the people, who may interpret this God of the Antichrist in a different way. Next we have this phrase, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. This phrase is a little hard to understand in the New King James, which I am reading from, so I will quote from the net to give a better idea of its meaning. It says there, To those who recognize him, he will grant considerable honor. He will place them in authority over many people. He will parcel out land for a price. This is a similar tactic employed by Antiochus IV, where in Daniel 11, 30 and 32, we see that he gave rewards to those who forsook God and followed him. It seems that the people in view here are rulers of nations and that they go over to his banner when he offers them these rewards. So we should expect that in addition to wars, the Antichrist uses generous diplomacy tactics to help conquer much of the world. The next phrase, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. It would appear that the Antichrist's wars, detailed in the following verses, suggest that the world will be remade in such a way that he is able to decide who rules what. There might be more information about who these people are in Daniel 7, as well as in the following verses. Daniel 11.40 says, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. First, this phrase, at the time of the end. Here we have an explicit indication of this being eschatological, especially when combined with 12.1, which refers to the great tribulation and the resurrection of the dead. We have this phrase, the king of the south shall attack him. We learn that the Antichrist will be attacked by the king of the south. Most scholars see this southern king as being Egypt, as that was the identity of the king of the south in the earlier parts of this chapter. It would seem that verse 43 validates this idea, as there we are told specifically that Egypt will be conquered by the Antichrist. I would suggest that this phrase, King of the South, in the end times, could include more countries than Egypt, but it must also include Egypt. Next we have this phrase, And the King of the North shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, 
horsemen, and with many ships. Because the grammar is not quite clear as to who him is referring to here, there has arisen a division on how to interpret this verse. Two main theories have been developed. They are sometimes called the three-king theory and the two-king theory. On the one hand, you have the three-king theory, which sees there being three subjects in verse 40, the Antichrist, the king of the north, and the king of the south. Using brackets to explain the pronoun reference, it would read as follows. At the time of the end, the king of the south will collide with him, that is, the Antichrist, and the king of the north will storm against him, that is, the Antichrist, and he, the Antichrist, will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. So in this reading, the king of the south attacks the Antichrist, then the king of the north attacks him as well, but the Antichrist defeats them both. The two-king theory only has two subjects in view. This is because they see the king of the north as the Antichrist. It would read like this. At the time of the end, the king of the south will collide with him, the king of the north slash Antichrist. And the king of the north, that is the Antichrist, will storm against him, the king of the south. And he, the king of the north slash Antichrist, will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. In this reading, it would be saying that the king of the south attacks the king of the north, who is also the Antichrist. But the king of the north, Antichrist, attacks the king of the south as well. And the Antichrist will be victorious. One way to explain the difference is to say that after the introduction of the Antichrist in verse 36, all pronouns like him and his are referring to the Antichrist, whereas in the two-king view, it has the references going back and forth. It may not seem like it now, but this is a crucial point if the church hopes to derive the geopolitical rise of Antichrist from this chapter and in the correct way. Depending on your view, you could be looking for a very different set of events for the rise of Antichrist on the world scene. J. Paul Tanner has demonstrated that the Hebrew grammar is not much help for either view, and that both readings are technically possible, so we will have to rely on other factors if we hope to fully understand this most critical verse. Tanner defends the three-king theory in his paper, Daniel's King of the North, Do We Owe Russia an Apology? And I would direct anyone interested in this to read that paper, as he also interacts with the leading arguments against his theory. I propose that the three-king theory is the correct way to understand this passage, and I will sum up a few points about why I think so, and then I will interact with some criticism made recently about this view by Joel Richardson. First, I think that the usage of him here to refer to different kings back and forth without clarification is unprecedented in this chapter, and it would constitute an entirely new way to express who is fighting who. Tanner sums it up this way in his paper. In Daniel 11.40, the pronouns on the prepositions marking the recipient of the verbal action are quite out of keeping with the way the hostilities between the two kings were previously described in the chapter. What I mean to say is that elsewhere in the chapter, Whenever an assault by one of the kings against the other was mentioned, the one who was the object is specified by his full title, not merely a pronoun. In light of this characteristic writing style of the author, the him is more likely the same referent in this verse, namely, the king of the preceding paragraph, i.e., the Antichrist. This favors the three-king theory. Tanner also notes that when referencing this king in verse 36, it simply calls him the king, not using either of the north or of the south, a particularly important point considering that it would mark the only time in this chapter when this occurs, save verse 27 when it's referencing both kings. I suggest that the three-king theory is the most natural reading of the text, and that is why it is the majority view. 
Basically, after the Antichrist is introduced by the angel in verse 36, and it quickly becomes obvious that the angel is again describing the same guy that has dominated Daniel's attention throughout the entire book, like in Daniel 7, where Daniel specifically asks the angel to tell him more about the Antichrist, or in Daniel 8, when, after hearing about the Antichrist, Daniel was sick for many days. And so, when it becomes clear that the same guy, who has now been the main subject of three separate visions of Daniel, is again in view, it is only natural that, from then on, the word him refers back to that dominating character. You can see the same basic pattern of pronouns in any of the other visions concerning the Antichrist in the book of Daniel. Joel Richardson, a proponent of the two-king theory, argues that in the three-king view, the king of the north and the king of the south have become allies, a point that he strongly disagrees with. He says, The kings of the north and south, who are enemies throughout the historical portion of the prophecy, are suddenly cast as allies together against the Antichrist. I have two things to say about this point. The first is that this is not a necessary conclusion of the three-king theory at all. Richardson quotes Tim LaHaye, who theorizes that since the king of the north attacks the Antichrist and the king of the south attacks him as well, that this is a coordinated attack of allies against their common enemy, that is, the Antichrist. That view is assumed by LaHaye. The text certainly does not say that they are coordinated joint attacks against the Antichrist or that these two kings are allies in any way. In addition, we are not given the chronology of these attacks. How far apart is the attack of the king of the north from the attack of the king of the south? We're not told. It could be years between these attacks. It could simply be that the Antichrist is attempting to gain control over the entire region, and these are isolated attempts of these countries at protecting themselves from the Antichrist. The second point I would like to make is that even if these countries make an alliance here against the Antichrist, it is not damaging to the three-king theory at all. In fact, contrary to what Richardson said, such a thing has precedence in the historical portion of Daniel 11. For example, an alliance was formed in verse 6 between the king of the north and the king of the south. There is no biblical reason that these kings would not find it advantageous to form an end-times alliance in light of a mutual enemy of the magnitude of the Antichrist. Another criticism of the three-king view that Richardson makes is the following. Quote, the three-king view turns Antiochus into both the type of the Antichrist throughout all of Daniel chapter 8 as well as Daniel 11, 21-35, and a type of the Antichrist's greatest enemy. He says this because the Antichrist will defeat the king of the north, which Antiochus was obviously a part of when that title referred to the Seleucid Empire. Richardson first assumes that Antiochus is in view after verse 36, which almost every conservative scholar would disagree with. Antiochus cannot be said to have fulfilled anything past verse 36. By this point, verse 36, a transition has been made that now describes someone totally different and unconnected with Antiochus. This particular genre of a type that we see with Antiochus IV and the Antichrist, where there is a complete divergence from the first individual, can also be seen in Ezekiel 28, where the first part of the chapter seems to be talking of an earthly king, the king of Tyre. Then there is a point where the actions of both the king of Tyre and Satan seem to overlap for a moment, and by the time we get to verse 12 of Ezekiel 28, it becomes clear that Satan is the only individual in view and that the king of Tyre has absolutely nothing to do with what follows. For example, the king of Tyre was not in the Garden of Eden, nor was he a covering cherub in the mountain of God. A change was made, and the inspiration for that change is dismissed, never to be returned to. 
A similar pattern for this kind of type can be seen in Isaiah 14 about the king and prince of Babylon. In the Ezekiel example, we wouldn't expect the fact that the king of Tyre was the inspiration for the section about Satan to mean that Satan really was the king of Tyre and that he lived in Lebanon, or that Satan or the Antichrist would be from Tyre in Lebanon. It would be applying this type in a way that Scripture never intended. In Richardson's view, since Antiochus was from the Seleucid Empire, the Antichrist must also be, because that was the historical person that the type grew out of in this chapter. But what would prevent a person from then saying that the Antichrist is from all the places that the various biblical types of Antichrist are from? Surely we wouldn't do that, as we would have several contradictory origins for the Antichrist. Richardson believes that his two king view fits the theory that the Antichrist will be a Muslim. But even if we assume the two king view, then we still have to deal with the fact of the Antichrist conquering Egypt, a decidedly Muslim country. As well as chasing after and clearly intending to destroy all the Muslim communities surrounding Israel, verse forty-one, not to mention the Libyans. In Richardson's book, it was not explained why his Muslim antichrist was so hostile to the Muslim world. Either the two or three king views would seem to me to be an incompatible belief with the idea of a Muslim antichrist. I will sum up by saying that although I, like a majority of evangelical expositors, Hold to the three king view, and will continue this exposition with that in mind. I will say that both views are technically possible based on the grammar, and it's difficult to be too dogmatic about this for that reason. The main difference in terms of what to watch for on the geopolitical stage would boil down to the following: If the two king theory is true, we are looking for a war where Egypt and its allies attack a northern coalition of Arab states, including Syria. And Syria and its allies absolutely destroy Egypt and take all of its wealth and power, as well as the countries to Egypt's west and south, like the Sudan and Libya. If the three king theory is true, not only will the Antichrist attack Egypt and its neighbors and take their wealth, etc., he would also conquer a coalition of northern Arab countries, including Syria. Next, we have this phrase: "Like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships." And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. These attacks from his enemies will be repelled by the Antichrist, and he will use overwhelming force and superior materials to overwhelm them. It appears that the first wars of Antichrist are defensive in nature. However, the strikes from these nations could be preemptive. Whatever the case, it is clear that during these first two conflicts, the Antichrist does not strike first. Daniel eleven forty one says. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand: Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Here we see that the Antichrist will enter Israel, the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. It is interesting to note here that there is no direct language that allows us to assume that the Antichrist intends on destroying or even attacking the Jewish people here. In fact, I would submit that the only groups that we can be sure he is attacking once he reaches Israel are Israel's Arab neighbors. One possible scenario is that he wants to appear to Israel as a deliverer of their enemies, though this is not at all clear, and it can also be seen as the moment just before the eschatological sacking of Israel, Revelation seventeen sixteen, or Luke twenty one twenty. Perhaps there is even room for both of these to be true. The next phrase, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Notice that it says, "But these shall escape from his hand." 
This means that the Antichrist did not want to let these nations go, but in his attempt to overthrow countries in this region, these three escaped his grasp. This is, of course, interesting because these three nations constitute modern-day Jordan, Israel's Arab neighbor to the southeast. I emphasize this point because so often commentators assume that these countries are somehow allied with the Antichrist. This is especially promulgated by those that think that the Antichrist will be a Muslim. But we can see that these countries are running from a pursuing Antichrist, certainly not the actions of allies. Based on the text so far, it is a very possible scenario that the Antichrist enters Israel looking to destroy only Arab nations. I say this not as a dogmatic statement, because it could be true that he is also seeking to destroy Jewish countries, but I say it because the text only mentions that he will destroy Muslim nations. Daniel 11.42 says, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries. This word for the countries is a very general term and could mean the land or the earth. It seems that on a very general level, we are to know that after the Antichrist enters Israel, he will have more victories. It singles out Egypt as one country that will not escape his grasp. Daniel 11.43 says, He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. The power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things seems to be referring to Egypt's wealth particularly. This presumably happens after his conquest of them. The Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. These two countries have represented Egypt's southern allies in other places in scripture, Ezekiel 35 and Nam 3.9. Follow at his heels. The Net Bible translates this, will submit to him. Daniel 11.44 says, but news from the east and south shall trouble him, therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. It's difficult to make any assertions about the specific locations being referred to by the terms east and north here. It seems reasonably certain that these are two new locations that have not yet played any role in the back-and-forth saga of chapter 11. In fact, the mention of the east is an entirely new idea for this chapter. Though many expositors assume that these two new threats to the Antichrist are countries that are some distance away, such as Russia and China, it should be noted that the text just as easily could be referring to a very near threat to his location, that is, Israel, which just happens to be to his east and north. One thing that seems certain is that whatever news this was that troubled him caused him to go attack and overwhelm these new threats. This, then, is a pattern of the Antichrist's conquest in this chapter. He seems to be an enemy to the region. Many nations plot against him. In the case of the king of the north and the king of the south, they both attacked him first, and then he destroyed them. In this case, though, we are not told what the news from the north and east is, but it can be assumed to a degree that this news was of a military threat to him of some sort. We must conclude that the Antichrist will be quite hated before the midpoint by at least some groups. If this chapter is any indication, then those groups will be Muslim. This is true whether one holds to the two or three king theory. The last verse, Daniel 11.45, says, that he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. First this phrase, tents of his palace. This is an odd word for palace used only here in scripture. The Net Bible has royal tents. The next phrase, between the seas and the glorious holy mountain seems to be a reference to Jerusalem, 
as we know that the glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion, and the seas refer to the Mediterranean Sea. This would also make sense in context, because we see in the next verse, though it is separated by an artificial chapter break, that this is when the Antichrist sits in the temple of Jerusalem, declaring himself to be God. The next phrase, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Because this phrase which forecasts the Antichrist's destruction is placed at the end of this chapter, it tempts the reader to think that the Antichrist will come to his end just as he reaches Jerusalem. This conjures up images of Gog Magog in many people's minds, the Antichrist attempting to take Jerusalem, but miraculously he is defeated by God. Such an interpretation of this verse would be wrong. This can easily be demonstrated by reading the next verse, 12.1. It says, At that time, referring to the time in Daniel 11.45, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. The time spoken of is unambiguously talking about the Antichrist setting up his royal tents in Jerusalem. This is significant because it then uses the same language that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 to refer to the time just after the abomination of desolation called the Great Tribulation. In other words, there is at least three and a half more years of Antichrist after he sets up his royal tents. The mentioning of his end coming is not unlike other occasions where the Antichrist is mentioned while adding a declaration about his ultimate destruction. Take, for example, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. When Paul introduces the Antichrist, he does so in this way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Paul goes on to talk at length about the lawless one, but his introduction here also included a reference to his end, much like in Daniel 11.45.